your Bible, go ahead and open it up uh, to the book of Titus. We're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Titus. We're going to learn something this morning, though, that I think is, is really important that we all grasp. It's something that, uh, honestly, I learned pretty early on, but it's been confirmed again and again over my four and a half decades of life. It's probably something that I think you'd agree with, and it's that sometimes people are just really, really dumb. Any amens out there? You've seen that before, just around some people? Like, holy cow, the Lord forgot to give you brains. You, you, I'm amazed sometimes. You see it when you're going around life, just people who do things that make no sense whatsoever. And I was really meditating on this. I like to call it the dumb gene. You know, we all, this humanity has this gene called the dumb gene. It makes you do dumb stuff. And, and where you see it probably most prevalent is on warning labels on products that you buy. Because sometimes they are the craziest things they put on. Now, every single warning label is there because some lawyer somewhere said, listen, you're going to get sued unless you tell them not to do this. Because sometime before, someone somewhere tried that very thing they're telling you not to do. That There's a chainsaw box that when you buy the chainsaw box, it says, warning, do not attempt to operate the chainsaw from the wrong end. And there's a picture of the chain in a hand being cut on it. Like, who does that? Apparently, someone tried it out. And so now they're going, put it on the label. They can't operate it backwards. There, there's another one uh, really cracks me up. Is, uh, if you buy an, an, like a clothes iron and you, you iron with, it, there's a little manual that comes with it. And there's all these warnings that are there. And there's some of them, in fact, many of them, they have a warning. It says, do not attempt to iron your clothes while on body. Because some people have decided, I'm in a little bit of a rush. Let me go ahead and do this real quick. And they don't want to get sued. So they put that label on there. Now, there's, a, there's another one that I think is hilarious to me. It's, as a parent, I probably shouldn't uh, be this way, but it's a, a costume, a Halloween costume, a Superman costume. At the bottom corner, it says, caution, this costume does not enable flight or superhuman strength. <laughs> and you want to know why I put that on there? Because kids all across America are on their roof with their Superman costume about to jump off, and the, the companies are going, we don't want to be sued for that, so we're going to put a little label on there. Does not enable flight, child. But we just, we have that gene in us that makes us do dumb stuff. Another one that I, I think is absolutely hilarious is a, a hair dryer. If you look at a little booklet of certain hair dryers, there'll be a little warning, do not attempt to dry hair while sleeping. <laughs> Who does that? Like, you're going to set up the hair dryer and, just, and let it like blow your hair. I, I guess people have done that enough where they said you, you shouldn't do that. Uh, another one that I thought was hilarious was a disposable coffee cup that on the bottom of the cup, it said, caution, avoid pouring contents into the crotch area. Like literally what the cup said, which I'm going, who, like, who needs that warning? Oh, I did it again. Oh, holy cow. But they put it there because there are enough people in enough places that have done it that they go, oh, God, we don't want to be sued, so we're going to put that on the cup. But my favorite one of all, it's because I have so many kids that this is so hilarious to me, is on a stroller. If you buy like a stroller, you know, you push with your kids on there. There's a huge label on the outside of the box that will say, caution, remove child before folding. And you want to know why that's there? It's not because the mamas. It's because a bunch of dads going, why won't this thing shut? Over, oh, I got to take the kid out first. And then it happened so many times that it put a big old label on the outside of the box. Dumbo, <laughs> take the child out first and then it shall close. It's just, I, there's about 20 of them that I saw that were hilarious that I could, I could tell you all day long. But you just, you see it, right? There's this gene that causes us to do really dumb stuff. 
And you know, you know you can look at those people and throw your stones at them, but if you look at your own life, you got the dumb gene too. We all, this preacher up here has the dumb gene. Can tell you how many times I, I finished with something and said, now why in the world did I do that? Every sin we commit is because of the dumb gene. God has said, here's the way to life and abundance and goodness, do this. And we go, actually, I think I can do it. I think I can hold a chainsaw on the other end. That'll go even better for me. The dumb gene makes us do really dumb stuff. And humanity has struggled with this particular gene for millennia. In fact, what you're gonna discover today is the apostle Paul has to talk to Titus to help him deal with the dumb gene that's running rampant in the church on the island of Crete. And with that context, you're gonna see how he tries to combat it with all kinds of warning labels for us. It's gonna be in Titus chapter two. So grab your Bible, open them up, Titus chapter two. Now, while you're flipping over to Titus two, I know we always have guests with us listening online in the room. So I want you to know what we're gonna be covering today. We're continuing the sermon series. We're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Titus. It's a short book. We've spent three weeks on chapter one so far already. We're gonna pick up the pace a little bit and cover all of chapter two today, all of chapter three next week, and we'll finish up the book. But this morning comes on the heels of last week's sermon. If you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about the influence of a group of people called the Judaizers. They were people who had come into the church that Paul had founded on the island of Crete, and they were spreading lies. Their, their influence was maligning the church, saying the gospel's not enough. You also need to have good works and be good. And, and he says, listen, watch out for these, the influence of the Judaizers. And he says, you can spot them from a mile away because they say one thing with their mouths, but they live a totally different way. That was actually the last verse of the last chapter. He says, they profess to know God with their mouths, but their lives don't show it. By their works, they show something else. He says, they say one thing with their lips, but they have something totally different with their lives. The talk and the walk don't align. And then in chapter two, when he flips over, he's gonna say, now this is what it looks like when your lips and your lives are aligned. When you don't just talk the talk, but you actually walk the walk in verses one through 10, show us what that walk is in chapter two. So that's where we're heading into. Titus chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, I wanna pause right there for one second because you, you, gotta, you gotta really know what he's saying here to understand the context. So this is Paul talking to Titus and he says, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And one of the biggest mistakes that we make as people who read the Bible is we read it fairly quickly and we don't really stop and think about what it's saying. And if you're not careful, it sounds like Paul is saying, teach sound doctrine to them. But that's not what it says. He doesn't say teach sound doctrine. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's a little Greek word in there, prepe. You don't, you don't need to remember that word, but it, it's very significant because it means what, is, what befits this or what aligns with, what matches up with this. So here's what he's saying. He says, Titus, teach them the actions that align with the doctrine that we've now given them. Show them how to walk the walk that aligns with the talk of godly doctrine. This is all about practically living out the faith in all different arenas of life. In verses two through 10 are all the warning labels. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. How a Christian lives out their faith. So let's read it. Verses two through 10 of chapter chapter two says this. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to stop there for a moment. Now, in those verses, 2 through 10, you just got 26 different commands from Paul. Things that you're supposed to do, ways you're supposed to behave, and then ways you're not supposed to behave. Just come in rapid fire at them. Now, in order to understand them, I, I need to pull out a little bit first and really talk through some, a couple of issues that can get you off track where your mind will start wandering into different places because of some of the wording that Paul says, specifically uh, pertaining to women and pertaining to bond servants, the Greek word there is doulos or slaves. Because there are some people who read this and say, well, look, it sounds like Paul's supporting slavery and it sounds like Paul's a misogynist, like he's just hating women, degrading women. Specifically, if you go over to verse five, there's some of you going, oh, no, he didn't. Because he's all like, but you got to be submissive to your husband. You got to work from home. And it just sounds like he's trying to put women down. And I want to deal with these because if that's floating around in your head, you're going to miss what Paul is trying to do here. Because I, I want to I tell you this morning, Paul is not a misogynist. and He's not, even, he's not a supporter of the slave trade. In fact, he's going to be very against it. You just got to see how he's trying to combat what's taking place. So Paul is always speaking into a cultural context, and that cultural context is so important to understanding how to rightly interpret Scripture. So when he says, women, I want you to be submissive to your husbands and work at home, he is not saying, I know you got a master's degree in business. I want you to leave your high-paying job because you're only good to be at home. So just do what your husband says. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I know right now in your cultural context, you're not allowed to work outside the home that you weren't allowed to be educated at school like the other Jewish boys were, even the Greek boys were. Your, your job right now is home. And he's saying, I want you to bloom where you're planted. I want you to express the gospel right where you are. Because in that cultural context in the island of Crete, there was this, this picture of what a successful woman looked like. It was, it was from Greek culture. And in the Greek culture, a successful woman, affluent aristocracy would be a woman who was super indulgent in her lifestyle, never did any work, had servants and said, bring me another drink. That's why it says, don't drink too much wine. They would get together with other rich women and talk about all the bad things. That's why he says, don't be slanderous to the older women because that was considered the height of making it. You didn't do a lick of work in your life. Everybody else serves you and you live self-indulgently. And what he says is women, if you have been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that's the doctrine you believe, this is what your life looks like. You are hardworking in your home. This is where you find yourself, then serve God there. Now, here's what's interesting. He actually gives dignity to women where culture didn't, because notice what he says. He says, older women, I want you to teach the younger women. In that culture, it was believed, and this is horrible, it was believed somehow, some way, that women didn't even have the capacity to learn. And so they weren't allowed to be taught, and they surely couldn't be teachers. And yet Paul comes back, he says, oh no, you absolutely can teach women Older women, teach the younger women, pour into them. You have so much to offer them. And then he says, women, you can learn, receive what they take you, be changed by it because you have dignity and capacity. In his cultural context, he's elevating women by saying, you have such a beautiful opportunity to show the world what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. It's actually what he's doing when he talks to bond servants as well, to slaves. There are some, he says, see, when he says, be submissive, to your masters and Christians over centuries have used this to say the Bible supports slavery and, and done atrocious things. 
But this is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I know you find yourself right now. And by the way, slavery biblically didn't, didn't pertain to the skin color. There were all different ethnic groups and people who were enslaved, usually because they had some kind of debt, and they were, they were perceived to be owned by the master of property. They didn't even have the imago Dei, the image of God in them anymore. They were just considered something to be used. And here comes the apostle Paul. And he says, listen, don't, believe, don't behave like those other people do who steal from their masters, who talk back, who are indignant. No, no, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you gotta bloom right where you're planted. Live out your faith, be kind, be generous, be submissive, work hard. And then he says absolutely beautiful words at the end of verse 10. He says, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's talking in this moment to slaves who are considered to be property. And he says, you are not property. You have the capacity to reflect the image of God to the world around. You can adorn, you can beautify the very image of God. Just walk in God's ways and the world will see the goodness of God through you. He's restoring the imago Dei, the image of God to people who were seen as property. He's not putting down women. He's not trying to support slavery. He's trying to restore the image of God to every arena of life, to the old and young, to men and women, to slave and free. He's saying to all of you, wherever you are, live out the implications of the faith that you claim to believe in. So when you understand the way Paul is approaching this, then you can really grasp a bit more of why he's given the do's and don'ts, which is, which is interesting. If you look at the list of what he says, like I said, 26 different things that he gives, and it just seems to me like there is no reason why Paul should have to give any of these 26 things. There's no reason that Paul should have to say to Christians, don't steal. He shouldn't have to tell Christians, don't get drunk on wine. He shouldn't have to tell Christians to have dignity and to be self-controlled and to love others. He shouldn't have to tell Christians not to slander. I mean, these are things that should be just blatantly obvious to the people of God. And yet 26 different commands Paul has to give to the church. And you wanna know why? Because we need those warning labels because we got the dumb gene inside of us and we keep doing dumb stuff. Paul is giving those warnings because the church isn't living according to God's ways. And Paul says, here's what you need. And then boom, 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 boom. Now I could walk through all 26 of these and there is some incredible truth, but I've learned something after years of preaching to you guys that after about the third one, half of you would be asleep. A quarter of you are already asleep right now. So I'm not gonna, not gonna keep going. I'm gonna dig into to just a 30,000 foot level instead of trying to go one by one, even though it's worth the study. Any of you Bible nerds out there, maybe hang around. We'll talk through all 26 of them. They're great stuff. But there is one common thread that weaves through the entire 26 list of commands. And it's the word that shows up again and again and again. It's the word self-controlled. It's like a drumbeat that keeps hitting over and over. If you look over it again, it starts, he starts off with older men. He says, you gotta be uh, sober-minded, have dignity, and self-controlled, he says. Then he goes over to older women. He says, be reverent in your behavior. He's talking about be self-controlled, not drinking too much. He's talking about self-control. Then he goes to younger women. He says, teach them to be self-controlled. And then he says, older men, teach the younger men to be self-controlled. And you see the word again and again. In fact, a little bit later on, we're gonna get to verse 12 and you're gonna see the word self-control come up again. And you see it again and again because here's what the apostle Paul is saying. He is saying, Titus, teach the church to be self-controlled because that is their number one problem. They are not self-controlled. And if Paul were in this room on this stage right now, 
I would be sitting out there with you, and he would say to every single one of us, our number one problem today is a lack of self-control. Every sin we commit, every broken promise we make, every misguided action, every wrongdoing, everything we regret, we do not because we don't know better, but because we can't control ourselves even though we know. We don't have self-control. We know we don't, we don't want to eat that, that. We know it's unhealthy, but we keep eating it. We know we shouldn't look at that online, but we just keep looking. We know we shouldn't say those mean things about people, but it keeps coming out of our mouths. We, we can't stop drinking that drink, even though we know we're not supposed to because we can't control ourselves. We, we keep flying off our lid and yelling at the people around us because we can't control our temper. We can't control ourselves. And so many of our problems stem from the fact that we have zero self-control. And what we need is to learn how to control self. We need to be transformed. That's what Paul is saying in all 26 of these, learn self-control. But this right here is where we go the most off the reservation. This is where we prove the insanity of our brains. Uh, you, you, maybe you've heard this said before, uh, the, the most insane thing you can do is to keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. And this is exactly what we do when it comes to self-control. We know we got to change. And because it's self-control, well, the only one who can control self is self. So that means I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I got to exercise more willpower and I got to change myself. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make deeper resolutions. I'm going to get up early to read my Bible. I'm going to do all the things I need to do. And it never lasts. We cannot control self. We keep failing again and again. We keep trying again and again. Why? Because our brains are insane. We got the dumb gene working all up inside of us and we can't figure it out. It's not working. But there's a reason it's not working. It's because we don't understand what self-control is. Now, I'm about to give you what was for me in the study of the passage of Scripture, the biggest truth bomb I've had in a while. And it's understanding why we get this so wrong. It's because the, the phrase self-control is so misleading in English. When I was studying the Greek word, I had a moment. My mind just blew up with truth. So it's translated as self-control in the ESV. Some of the versions that you're using may say sound-mindedness. It's a Greek word. It's called sophron. You, you don't have to remember that word either, uh, although it's really impressive. Sophron is a fun word. But it's two words put together, sozo, which means to save, and frain, which means mind. And what it literally means is a saved mind, a mind that has been redeemed. Think about Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's what that's saying. You want to change your behavior? Change your thinking. Change your mind. As you think, so you are. So you, if your mind can begin to transform, then your actions will follow. So your mind has to be redeemed. Well, here's the secret to that. You can't save your own mind. You can't redeem your own mind. Someone has to do it from outside you. And guess who does that? There is no one who saves better than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one who redeems better than the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly why. Now, you can give God praise for that. You should give God praise for that. But this is exactly why, as this switches over, this is how Paul, sometimes you see Paul in Scripture, it seems like he's pivoting, like he was going one direction, now he goes somewhere else. But if you see how all the dots connect, it's the natural outflow. So he's talking about all these rules to obey. you got to be self-controlled, and you think he's going to say, so try harder. And then in verses 11 through 15, he goes right to the gospel. Why? Because he knows it's the only way for your mind to be saved. So let's keep on reading. Let's finish up the chapter. Verses 11 through 15. Paul moves on to say, 
for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, there's a word again, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he turns around after this list of do's and don'ts, all these warning labels, and he comes back and he says, listen, the only way you're going to have a mind that has been redeemed and saved is if you trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, did you hear it? He said, here's Jesus Christ who gave himself up. He chose to go to the cross to redeem you. And then it says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. You see the dominoes? Jesus goes to the cross. He purchases you as he redeems you. Then he purifies you so that you do good works. Verses 10, 2 through 10 are only possible when you come back to the first place and you recognize your mind has to be redeemed. So here's what he's saying. He's saying it is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms your actions, not you trying harder. It is not willpower. It is gospel power that makes you behave the way you're supposed to behave. That's exactly what he was getting to back in verses 11 and 12. There's a progression that you have to see. Go back to verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That right there is gospel 101. The grace of God. The grace of God means an unmerited, undeserved, unearned gift given to you. It's, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a result of works, not your own doing, so that no one can boast. This is all God. It has been done to us by him. For by grace you have been saved. And that's what brings us to salvation. Now this runs so contrary to human nature. Human nature is, if I want to be right with God, then I need to work hard. I need to change my life up. I need to get things in order before I come to him. This is why there are so many people who desperately want to give their lives to Christ. They want to come up here on the stage and be baptized, and they keep holding off again and again because they go, well, I, just, I need to get a few more things right in my life first. I, I, need to, I need to get some things in order, and, and then I'll be good enough to come down. But you're saved by grace, not by works. Grace means it's not up to you. Christ already finished it on the cross. You trust in what he's done for you. That's the first place you got to begin. There are some of you in this room, I am certain, that you've been trusting, desperately hoping that the good in your life will outweigh the, outweigh the bad and somehow, someway, you're going to make it into heaven. That is going to kill you over and over and over again because you will never make it. The gap is way too wide between the holiness of God and all your brokenness. The only way to bridge that is trusting in the grace of God. That's what brings salvation. If that's where you are, today may be the day you need to place your faith in the grace of Almighty God. Nothing else I have to say even matters until you get that right. So you, you park right there because at the end of the service, I'm gonna tell you what you do to respond to that. But before you respond, there's something else you've got to know. And there's something else that every single one of you in this room who has placed your faith in Christ and been baptized needs to know because this is the number one error I see in the church. And it's to believe that the gospel is what saves you, but it's up to you to be holy. Like, okay, Jesus, you did your job. Thank you, sir. You washed my sin away. Now it's up to me to try to live a different life. It was God power to save me. Now it's willpower to keep living a righteous life. And that right there will kill you as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just save you. It cleanses you as well. It trains you to live the life you need to live. 
That's exactly why he moves from verse 11 to verse 12. So in verse 11, he talks about the grace of God that brings salvation. And listen to what this grace does in verse 12. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says the grace of God is what is training us so that we can renounce all the self-destructive behavior because of our dumb gene. And so we can be self-controlled, have a renewed mind that lives an upright and godly life. It's not our hard work. It's not even just reading the Bible more. It's not going to church more. It is believing the grace of God more and more. That's what trains us because our character shifts to which you're going, okay, I hear you, Jason. I just can't connect all the dots. I mean, how does, how does thinking about the gospel and believing the gospel actually change my behavior? Well, what it does is it reorients you entirely. You see, when you are focused on willpower, you are focused on self. Think about all the times we say, I need to change. I need to try harder. I need to read my Bible more. I need to stop drinking that, looking at that. I need to, I need to, I need to. It's self-focused. And anytime you are self-focused, you are going to be self-destructive. When you are self-focused, it will lead you to do all the things that you know not to do. Take what's not yours. Speak evil against it because it feels good. Watch that thing you shouldn't watch. Drink that thing you shouldn't drink. Take that thing you shouldn't take. All those things will be there because you're self-focused. Self-focus, selfishness, is the self-destructive gene inside of us that makes us do all the dumb stuff. And as long as we are focused on willpower, we'll be right in that wheelhouse of self-destruction. But the gospel, the gospel is God-focused, not self-focused. The gospel says, look at what you've done for me. Look at how you transform me. Listen, this comes down to even the way we relate to God. Because when you're trying by your own effort to be right with God, to do it through willpower, then that, that will lead you into what we commonly refer to as religion. And by the way, Christianity is not religion. Christianity at its core is totally different than religion. Religion, every religion in the world says, as long as you obey all the rules and regulations of that religion, then God, whatever, however you define that divine power, he will bless you. Every religion in the world is based on that truth. As long as you obey, do your part, then God should do his part. Listen, there are some of you in this room and you don't even realize that's your religion. And you think it's about Jesus, but God is not doing his part. You're coming to church week after week, putting up with this 40-minute sermon every single week. How long is that dude going to keep talking? God, surely four weeks of putting up with this should be enough. When are you going to bless me, God? Look, I, I stopped smoking. God, why aren't you going to bless me at work? God, I haven't looked at that internet site in two months. And you still haven't healed me. You still haven't been with my loved one. God, why? I'm doing my part. God, why aren't you doing your part? If you ever feel that compulsion, then just know what's going on in that moment is you think that because you're doing your part, then God should be doing his part. That's religion. That's not the gospel. The whole message of the gospel is God has already done all the parts. Jesus obeyed the Father. He earned our righteousness. He took that robe of righteousness off his own back, put it onto us so that we could have his righteousness. And every lick of obedience we have is purely in gratitude for what he's already given us. That's a totally different posture. When you love God that way, then you love God with a pure love. And it's no longer about trying to control God. It's not about saying, God, I just want to honor you. That kind of love will change your very character. I, I've, I've seen this uh, most poignantly play out in my own son, Max. Now, I'm about to share a story with you that's very personal, 
Uh, and I asked my son, Max, if I could share the story because it is very personal. It has to do with him. And I, I love his response. He said, yeah, Dad, if it's going to get the gospel out there, then I want you to share it. So, Max, thank you, brother. I'm going to share this. But if you, if you don't know um, Max at all, uh, he is an incredible young man. And uh, he's been in our family now for 14 and a half years. He's about to turn 18, which is so crazy. I cannot believe that. But God has been gracious uh, to have him in our family for these 14 and a half years. We adopted him when he was three and a half years old. That means for the first three and a half years of his life, he lived in an orphanage. Now, let me tell you about living in an orphanage. Uh, I know it's secondhand, obviously, I don't know it firsthand, but in that environment, your, your brain gets formed a certain way because of how you survive in an orphanage. It, all psychologists, sociologists, behavioral scientists will tell you the first couple of years of a child's life are the most formative because they form the foundation of how you interpret the whole world around you. And so he spent the first three and a half years in an orphanage. Praise God, it was a good orphanage. But there's something you learn in an orphanage, and it's that if you want attention, if you want to receive, then you got to behave a certain way to get it. Mission teams would go over to his orphanage, and if you would do a cute little dance or you would crawl up into somebody's lap, then they would hug you and go, oh, you're so cute. And you would get special attention if you behaved a certain way. And Max, when he was little, that, that guy, he would adorableize you if you were around. He was just so stinking adorable. So he got a lot of attention because he, he knew how to get attention. He knew how to be cute. And then if you wanted to get some extra food from the workers there, you knew you, you would be obedient immediately. They told you to do something. You'd be the first one to pop up and make your bed and do what you're supposed to do. And the, they, the care workers, the, the good people, they would, they would give you special attention. They might give you a little extra food because you're making their life easier. Well, you don't realize what's taking place, but your brain is starting to internalize. The foundation is when I behave well, then people take care of me. But there's an equal fear that comes with that. If I don't, no one's going to care for me. Now, that's a great survival tool when you live in an orphanage, but it doesn't translate well into a family. And so when we first adopted, and we had, we had no clue about this, but there were little things that started to happen that we recognized were, uh, were unusual. So when it would become time for mealtime, Max would come up every once in a while, and he'd give me or he'd give uh, Virginia a big hug, and he would give us a kiss on the cheek, say, I love you. Now can I have dinner? And we, didn't, we thought it was unusual. Of course, of course you can have dinner, Max. We're getting everything set up right here. Just hang tight. It'll be there in a moment. We, we didn't realize what was going on in his brain. Or maybe we were playing outside and everybody's tired and, and Virginia brings snacks and he would come up and he would sing a song, Jesus loves me, be real cute, and then say, can I have a snack now? And it, didn't, it didn't hit us at first what he was doing, that he thought he had to do something to earn the snack. Because we're going, of course you can have a snack, Max. We got it for everybody. Yeah, we'll give it to you in a moment. But for months, this went on, and we didn't know what was taking place. We just thought it was unusual until we saw the, the dark side of it, and that was the tendency to lie to cover up when there was wrongdoing. There would be so many times when Max would do something that uh, he knew was wrong, but he just couldn't admit that he'd done it, and he would lie. He would lie over and over and over again. Remember, there was this one time where there was a, a bowl on top of a table and he was, he was short, so he had his hand up there and he was kind of reaching across it and knocked the bowl over and it shattered. And I'm standing just a few feet away from him. I see it happen and I say, Max, why'd you break that? And he said, I didn't do that. Max, I'm, I'm right here. I, I saw you do that. I didn't do that, Daddy. Max, I, I know you did it. All I'm asking you to do is to admit, I didn't do that, Daddy. I know what you're talking about. For an hour, 
He's, I'm starting to think I'm going crazy. Like I'm hallucinating right now because for an hour he won't, until finally he admits it. I, I did it, Daddy. I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm beside myself. I don't even know what to do with this. Like how, why would you lie to me until finally he says something? And what he said broke my heart. When I finally said, Max, why are you lying to me? He said, Daddy, I was afraid that if you found out, you would send me back to China. I want you to know, I looked my son in the eye, my heart broke. I said, there's no way. Max, I love you. Max, we chose you. We pursued you. We came for you. We did everything we had to do because we love you, because you're our son and that's never gonna change. And I determined in that moment, come hell or high water, I was gonna teach my son that I love him. So anytime something would happen, we started walking through it. I said, okay, here's what we're gonna do, Max. We're gonna, we're gonna talk through this. And I would get down on the floor and I would just sit and I would just go crisscross applesauce. And I would say, okay, Max, come on, come here in my lap. And he was a little bitty back then. He could fit in my lap. And I would hold him. And I would say, okay, Max, do I love you right now? He would say, yes, daddy, you love me. And I would say, Max, why do I love you? And he would say, because I'm your son and you're my daddy. I said, that's right, buddy. Is that ever gonna change? He said, no, daddy. That's right, I'm always gonna love you. And then I'd say, Max, if you pushed over every bowl in our house and broke every one, would I still love you? And he'd say, yes, daddy. And I'd say, why, Max? And he'd say, because you're my daddy and I'm your son and that's never gonna change. I said, that's right, Max, I'm always gonna love you. Then I say, Max, if you burned down the house, would I be happy? He'd go, no, daddy. <laughs> and then I'd say, but would I still love you? And he'd say, yes, daddy. And I'd say, why? And he'd say, because you're still my daddy and I'm still your son. And I said, that's right. Nothing's ever going to change that. I'm always going to love you. And over months and months of doing that, bringing him into my lap again and again and again, I saw his very character begin to change. I remember the first moment it happened when he had done something wrong and I saw him and I asked him, Max, did you do that? And he came to me and he says, yes, daddy, I did. Can you forgive me? I threw my arms around him. I said, here's a hundred bucks. What do you want? <laughs> you can have it all. Because I was so blessed that he trusted me and he wasn't afraid and he loved me. And he knew because I loved him. That right there is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many of us are afraid of a God who loves us. And we know we sin. We know we got the dumb gene inside of us. We rebel against God. And then we are so scared that he's angry with us. There are so many of you in this church. And the number one thing that'll cause you not to show up two or three months from now or two or three years from now isn't because I said something that offended you. It's because you're going to sin and you're going to feel like a hypocrite for coming to the church. Listen, the place you need to be is the house of God. His arms are open saying, come to me because I love you. And he's saying, because I'm your daddy and you're my child and nothing's ever going to change that. There's no sin you could commit that's going to change that. You could burn the house down. Might not be real happy with you, but I'm going to love you. But come to me, come to me. I just, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried that there are some of you in this room and you should not be afraid of a father who loves you, but you are because you know the gravity of your sin.
You know, you keep failing over and over and over again, but the reason you're failing is because you think that God is displeased because of your behavior. God was never pleased by your behavior. He's not displeased by your behavior. He wants more for you, but he's not displeased by your behavior. He wants to love you, but he can only love you when you come to him. And you'll only come to him when you trust in his love. That's why the gospel can change you when religion can't. Because the gospel says, no matter what I do, his arms will be open and I can come back to him again and again and again. Praise God. I think one of the clearest pictures I've seen, one of the other pastors sent me this, uh, this little clip of how to tell the difference between religion and gospel. Religion, it says, I've messed up. Man, my dad is gonna kill me. The gospel says, I've messed up. Man, I need to call my dad right now. You see the difference between those two? See, my, my son, Max, he's, he, I, I feel his love constantly, but it feels so different. Uh, on Friday night, what teenage boy would be in the garage helping their dad clean up for two straight hours? My son, Max, was right beside me helping me and Virginia clean up the garage, put stuff in the attic, two straight hours. He should have been playing video games, but he was over there helping us out. You know why he did it? He didn't do it to earn my love. He did it because he loves me, because I love him. That's why I entrust everything to him. He's driving now. God help us all. <laughs> and he's got my truck. He's driving my truck around. He's doing exceptionally well, by the way. I'm, I'm proud of him. But there could come a moment, God forbid, when he gets in an accident. And in that moment, he's going to have a decision to make. He's going to say, oh, man, I messed up dad's truck. He's going to kill me. Or he's going to say, oh, man, I got an accident. I need to call my dad right now. And I'm praying that my son would say, I'm calling my dad right now because I need his help. There are some of you right now, God has entrusted things to you. He's trusted life to you. And you've screwed it up. And you're going, oh, dad is so mad at me. He's, God must be so mad. He's going, I can help you but I need you to call me. I need you to come to me. I need you to trust in my love. Today, the response is you trusting in the love of God. In a moment, I'm gonna give you a chance to come forward because there are some of you who need to claim the love of Almighty God for the first time. You feel so broken and so sinful like God cannot possibly love you and he loves you and he wants to save you, but there must come a moment when you come before him and say, I choose you, I trust in your love. You're not gonna reject me, God. Save me. That's why at the end of every service, we have a chance for you to come down to pastors and say, today I need to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I've, I've been thinking wrong. I've been thinking he's angry at me, that he's punishing me, that he's against me. And now I know he loves me. He wants to adopt me and save me. I want to be adopted. That's you. You come down. There's an adoption ceremony. It's called baptism. It's where you get a chance to express publicly, I belong to him. He's chosen me and pursued me and loved me forevermore. But you got to come to him. He's come to you. You got to come to him. If you're ready to make that decision today, you'll have an opportunity. But you got to trust in his love to do it. I'm going to give you a chance to come forward in a moment to do that. Before I do that, though, I want to say one last thing. There are many of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. You've been baptized. You've trusted in his love. But every once in a while, when you're going through hardship, you start to wonder, is this happening because God's angry at me? Why, why, why is this happening? God, what have I done wrong that you won't heal this, or you won't fix this, or you won't provide for this. God, why, why are you against me? What have I done wrong? Listen, God every once in a while disciplines us, but it's always to bring us back into his arms. He's not angry at you. He loves you. 
And maybe what you need to do this morning is to trust in his love. And one of the ways you can do that is by taking your need down to one of these people who are going to be down front and saying, would you pray for me? Here's a need I have, but I know my God is not against me. He's for me, and I want to, I want to trust in his love. Will you pray for me? When you come for prayer, you're not coming to us. You're coming to the Lord, and we're just partnering with you to take your need up to the Lord. Maybe today you need to say, I trust in your love, God. Please show me your power to meet this need, and we'll pray for you. But you got to respond. Why don't you stand up if you, if you don't mind? We're going to sing a song, and this song talks about running into the arms of a father who loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. So I want to invite the pastors and the prayer team members to come spread around the room. And I want to invite you to come. If you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, today's the day for you to find salvation, a God who loves you. You come let us know today needs to be that day. If today you need prayer because you say, I trust in your love, God. And you come let one of us know we're ready for you. You respond.